Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Sam Hocking, co-founder of Vertis AI, a company whose market intelligence platform aims to transform the HR and commercial real estate industries by giving companies the information they need to make better location and investment decisions based on billions of data points about how and where people want to work. Sam, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Great to see you. And I'm excited to talk to you about what we think is a really interesting topic. I made a very bold statement in, in my opening remarks there about how you're transforming real estate and, uh, and HR. But if I said to you, which of those do you, does Virtus mainly address? Is it real estate or is it HR or, or is it genuinely both? I would say, you know, it's probably more around the people. So HR and human capital with the view that's also driving interesting ideas around uh, real estate. Now, you, you, you say it's mainly about the people, but the, the service you provide does enable the users to rank uh, the local real estate market as well as the local labor market, uh, the combination of those two things. Uh, when exactly are you finding companies are using these tools? When are they most likely to use these tools? Is it when they're looking to expand their business? Is it when they're looking to make a major investment in a, in a new area? Is it when they're making an acquisition? What are the, what are the triggers for them to to really use these tools? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, when you, when you first start a company, you kind of have an idea how people are going to use your information and your intelligence platform. And then as people start using it, what you find is actually it has more use cases than you imagined. So let me start with the people. The people side, the HR people are using it as they're looking for different pools of talent. And as we kind of have uh, this kind of reshuffle of where people live and where they work and how they want to work, there's a lot of migration going on in the country. And so new pools of talent that companies hadn't imagined before are starting to avail themselves. And so the second idea is that, you know, before you, you generally had to hire for your location. And now that you don't have to hire for your location and you can hire anywhere, um, the idea is, is there information and tools that can help you find those people? And that is one of the use cases that's, that's happening. The second thing is you're trying to figure out where people live. And if you find people in these certain areas you hadn't imagined before, you have to think about what kind of real estate would be available and how would we go about creating real estate needs and services for those new people. I'd say the third one is around investment. So we have one of the largest um, investment firms in the world using this. This is Brookfield. And they're looking at what are the different markets that might be interesting to them now that you have migration and people moving and cities are reshuffling and being reimagined. They might be really good places to make investments. So I think in summary, I would say at first we thought it'd be more for expansion, but now what we're seeing is if a company wants to reshuffle, redistribute, find new workers, um, it's a really good tool for that. 
The second is in investment side, we're finding it's really helpful to companies that are thinking about how markets are changing and maybe they need to be in these markets they previously hadn't been in. And then I think the third one is really um, if you have your existing portfolio of people and human capital, maybe you want to rethink it. And this gives you tools and information to try to, to rethink what you should potentially do. Now, a lot of what you talked about is obviously future orientated. Uh, now, Virtus does advertise itself as, uh, as helping companies to, to make predictions about what's going to happen. And prediction is a, is a very big word. Are these genuinely predictions or are they more like projections and extrapolations from, uh, from existing data? And have you been able to backtest the data you're using to, to see how the outcomes conform to, to what actually happened, the predicted outcomes conform to what happened? Yeah, I think, I think this is a good point. You know, predictions, all, all people always talk about predictions. I would say we're probably more in the projections at the moment. We're projecting this is where things will grow one, three, five, ten years, you know, around labor and around real estate and around economy. So I think we're probably more in the projection side of it uh, with a view that we think we will be more and more as we get more data um, be aligned to predicting where things might go. But I think right now we're probably more in the projection of things. One of the issues that uh, a lot of financial institutions talk to us about these days is DNI, diversity and inclusion. And if you're looking at, at, at where people are and um, how they like to work and all of it, can you can you help corporations with that with that question, with the DNI question as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's an, actually a very interesting question because as we go and meet with heads of HR, you know, this is one thing that's on their mind is how do I, how do I create a more diverse, equitable um, body of talent for our company and how do, we, how do we help that? And so a lot of that's around data, like where can we find people? Where, where are more diverse uh, talent pools? Where are their opportunities to find these people. And I think one of the things that's happened is now that you don't have to be so location driven, you know, you can find a more diverse um, group of people that might support, you know, your, your initiatives. And one of the things that we're also helping people think about is are these communities diverse? So it's one thing to have a diverse workforce, but if you hire diverse, diverse workforce that doesn't is they're not in a kind of diverse community, I think it's hard. And so one of the things we're seeing is our data allows people to find a diverse workforce, but also in diverse uh, communities, which is really important for people because when they work in diverse diversity, they wanna see themselves as a part of the community and they wanna see other people like them. And so I think our information is allowing um, our clients to do that. I guess the other thing a lot of your clients be worrying about is, is ESG, the environmental, social governance issues. Um, an obvious example is you, if you don't have a huge uh, gas emitting uh, center of town headquarters, you can perhaps reduce your carbon footprint. But are there lots of ways in which you can help companies with ESG compliance? Yeah, I, what I would say on that is that we're, that's probably on our roadmap. I mean, that's something that has definitely come up a lot is you know, how can you help us on the ESG? And I think this is something that investors are driving boards to be more cognizant about. And so we have that on a roadmap. And I think that's something down the road that we will definitely tackle. 
um, as it becomes more and more important to kind of the C-suite of how they're thinking about particularly real estate and where they're located and the ESG implications. Now, one of the things HR departments talk about is the, is the employee value proposition. And when you talk to employees, they're always talking about the sort of work-life balance. Are you able to help companies manage those two potentially conflicting uh, views of what work ought to be like? Well, I think what's fundamentally changed is I think the, the balance of power, particularly in the, in the tech community, has gone to the employees. So I think the employees are really driving this, this discussion around quality of life and how we work and can I work from home or can I work two days a week at the office or can I have flex space? How do I reduce my commute? And do I really need to go to the office five days a week? So I think in a way it is helping them because I think companies are saying, okay, they, as far as quality of life, maybe you don't need to come to the office five days a week, but we, you can come two days a week, but we'll also cut down your commute and we'll find maybe some flex space that's closer to your office or closer to your home rather. Um, and that will cut down your commute time. So I do, I do think the information is starting to allow companies and employees that sense of um, cut down commute time, cut down on the amount of time to go to the office and maybe have more time at home. Mm-hmm. Now we talked a lot about uh, the, the outputs, if you like, of, of, your, of your intelligence platform, but what are the inputs? What are the actual sources of data which you're tapping to drive yeah. these? Um, to drive the engine, the platform. Yeah. And Dominic, you know, I've been working on this problem for a long time and data has kind of been something I've been passionate about for the last, you know, 10, 11 years. And, you know, at first, when you think about data and inputs, you think, okay, I'm just going to get a source and that that'll be the input, but rather, you know, after this is kind of my third company to build, I've, I've realized it's actually not so clear cut, like you just go get a source and now you have it. It's actually, you have to have tons and tons of different sources and kind of cut and slice them and then build what's what we call data bricks. So it's information from different sources that then create inputs into a category of something. So if we want to know a lot about people, you know, that could be 50 or hundred different data sources that we put together. And so we would, we would drive anything from, you know, government data, from um, government sources to third-party sources that we subscribe to, to um, other data sources that we might get um, by um, using um, technical means to get it or crowdsourcing. So in, in general, we take lots of different data sources and then we bring it together. Then we pull it into our machine learning models then we create the insights that you know drive hopefully helpful intelligence for our our clients. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you how you do that? Do you you don't go and get this data and stick it in a big data warehouse and then run algorithms across it? You go and get the data when you need it. Do you? Yeah. So I actually or a mixture yeah, of both. Yeah. So it's a mixture of both. I think that getting data and I, I call it more kind of R and D. So we're always thinking about what other data could be out there. What other data um, potential is out there. And then if we got some of that data, then what we do is we bring it in, we test it, we evaluate it, we see if it actually matches kind of the use cases that we're trying to drive. 
And then as we get it, and then we make that decision, and then we start putting it together, then we put it into kind of our machine learning models and drive the algorithms that hopefully then give us the input. Then from there, what we do is we kind of think about how would people use it? So now that we have it, now we've created some analytics, how would we design it in our platform where people can actually use it easily? And so what I think one of the issues that a lot of data companies have is that they just kind of drop data into um, a warehouse and then drop it in the product. And then they hope that the user will figure it out. There's a lot more curating going on on our side to make sure that what we're trying to solve is answered by the data and the analytics that we put together. And then people can have an easy user interface and user experience that hopefully solves their problems. Now, you mentioned machine learning models. Uh, I don't know how difficult this question is to answer, but, but how, did, how, how does the machine, how do the machines learn? Yeah, I mean, the machines learn by, you know, patterns of recognition. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to create, you know, a way that the machine can learn from the, the patterns of information. And as, the, as we get more data in, as we drive more data, more data sources, uh, more inputs, then the machine learns more and more and then creates some interesting insights that it sees that then gives our clients a, a better, I'd say a better interpretation of what might happen, you know, down the road. Uh, you mentioned this, that there are public sources of data, there are private yeah. sources of data, there are crowdfunded sources of data, but your clients you're working with also have, have in-house data. And can you blend that with the other sources of data to arrive at different insights? Yeah, so that's actually a really great question. So one of the things that we hadn't imagined when we started was, is, is taking client data. So one of the things that clients do is they give us a lot of times employee data, not the names, but just the, maybe the title and where a zip code is. So there's no what's called PII data. Um, and so we can take that data and then we can do a couple things. One, we can map it across the country or across the world. And we can show and visualize for our clients where all their people are and how they're attached to each location. And then you can also determine how far they are from the office, which is a really good insight for people because what they're trying to decide is maybe those people are like 50 miles away from the office. Then those, a lot of companies are deeming those people then to be automatically remote. Um, and they won't need real estate services per se. So I think we can take that data and then we can also put that into some of our analytics and give them some different uh, outputs to that. And the second thing is, that, so they give us the, the employee data and they would give us the um, location data and then several of the investment firms wanna give us their, all their investments so that we can also map that and show how maybe in some of those areas, things are trending or not trending. So we have the capability, the engineering capability to bring that all in house and put it in the platform as something the clients have actually expressed, something they find very helpful. And does the client have to know what they're looking for? I know they're thinking of opening a distribution warehouse to service the Southern United States. You know, Should they put it in Texas or Florida or Arkansas or, 
or, or, or does the machine actually make suggestions to them? I mean, what's the most effective way of using this technology? You say, this is what I want to know, please tell me the answer, or is it to say, here's a general idea of what I'm thinking of doing, could you please make some suggestions? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the way people are using it at the moment is they have some general idea. Um, and then what they can do is they can then custom weight all their attributes. So let's say, for instance, they want to go where the market is growing by, you know, five or 10% or in the migration is increased by three to 5% or their, the diversity um, ratio is high in that community, or that um, the, it's knowledge workers, you know, these are, they can find knowledge workers with advanced degrees, then they can run all that, um, those, and then it matches into our analytics, and then it would give them a scoring of maybe these are the five cities that matched your criteria. So you can use it as kind of a discovery research tool that way, and you can keep doing that. I mean, that what I just described, someone could do in probably a minute, and then there would be a scoring. And then they could change the custom weightings, the attributes, and find themselves in a situation where there's, different, there's a different output. But we're finding it's probably helpful if people have a general idea what's important. And I would say, you know, most people we work with have a general idea what's important to them. Um, it's the changes around the weighting um, and the weightings that might drive a different output. And, you know, some of the feedback we get from our clients is, wow, this is so interesting. I wouldn't have come up with that, um, with that scoring or that kind of recommendation on my own. So this is very helpful. And then I think the other thing about it is as they get that scoring and the recommendation, then they can, they can dive deeper into why that happened, why it came to that kind of scoring. And then it gives them some a kind of a data-driven approach then to go to maybe the board or the senior management to say, here's here are the options we think we should pursue with regards to driving more talent acquisition and driving kind of a real estate strategy. The joke has always made that if you have a pile of data, you torture it long enough, it'll give you the answer that you want. And you've got these clients who are putting the filters on, they're putting weightings onto this data. How do you prevent them, you know, inadvertently distorting the outcome? Is it just to do endless iterations or is there some other technique you make available to them? Well, I think that the biggest thing for us is we're, we're providing a kind of an unbiased view of what's going on. And I think that's what uh, people like about us versus maybe say the broker community, which is, you know, probably driving some data that they hope will then transact into some big real estate investments. We're providing an unbiased view and then how our clients use it to, you know, potentially create their own bias is, is up to them. But we feel like we're providing the, the platform and the tool that drives an unbiased view. Um, but not we can't um, we can't stop if they wanted to create a bias view to help their their own uh, initiatives. But um, right now we think we're 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 doing the right thing by an unbiased view. And you said a moment ago that it would take somebody a minute to do something. I mean, how hard is the system for an untrained person to use? Is it like a dashboard, and any fool can go in there and start playing with it immediately? Well, we we not we. 
like to not think of our customers as fools. So uh, we find I'm them very, myself, Sam. It's all right. <laughs> a fool like me. We find, we find them very sophisticated and very thoughtful, like you are. But I, 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 so that's where we spend a lot of time. I think this is a really important question because, you know, I come from the finance background and, and a lot of the finance products are really good mathematically and they're really sound, but they're very hard to use. I mean, it's, and I think we've taken a different approach where we say how we make it really easy for people to use because we have a view that designing the output and how people use it is paramount to people using it all the time and, and having a good time with it. I mean, we, we don't want it to be hard. We want it to be easy and we don't want it to be mysteries and black boxes. We want it to, to be kind of understood how it's happening, how the machine's working, and then an easy way to kind of go in and out of the product. So design, I would say, is equally or more important than even the data that's going through there. It's, and I think that's kind of the Silicon Valley way where you really put a lot of time, money, and effort into the user interface and the user experience. So just as a concrete example, you know, we go to our clients all the time and say, is that working? Is that hard? Is it too much uh, friction as you're going through it? what would make it easier? And then we kind of come back and we take that feedback and we, we make it easier. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And, you know, as the third time around company builder, um, that's been a paramount thing for me. And how do you, or I guess more importantly, the clients measure the success of using this tool? Do they say, oh, we, we've cut our real estate costs by 10% or we've reduced our payroll costs by 20%? Is, is that how they measure success? Yeah, so that's a good question. So one of our clients is, um, you know, what they're trying to really measure is if they moved people to a different location uh, and hired people around a different location and they also cut real estate expenses, they would increase their margins. And so that's really how they're seeing success as the tool and the information we're providing helps them solve that. And if they can get to that state where they're reducing the margins, um, right, sorry, they're increasing the margins, they're reducing the amount of cost and they're increasing their margins, then they find that very successful. And that's, we're, we're kind of dead on with a client that's doing that right now. And in terms of how you get remuneration for this, are you invested in that success or is this purely a, a sort of, I know you're a software as a service model, so it's a purely subscription-based thing, no matter how much uh, um, they fatten their margins or save money, you don't get to eat any of that. You're just getting a flat fee. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's how it works. We're more a, a license fee, a yearly license subscription fee. Um, and I think we, we want to keep it that way because I think that makes us neutral to you know, just trying to help them um, reduce their costs. I think that might take the unbiased view out of it for us. So I think we're sticking to the subscription model. But, you know, as you know, business models change. But right now, we're very uh, committed to the kind of SaaS business model. Well, setting aside the benefits they get from it in terms of widening margins, saving money and so on, um, do they... How are they doing this stuff today? Are they working with HR consultancies, working with real estate brokers? Are they having to deal with lots of intermediaries? 
And what sort of data do they have access to at the moment? I'm, I'm really asking you this question because I'm kind of interested, you know, what, what, what's the nature of the problem that you're solving? Yeah. Is this a high cost inefficient process, which leads to, you know, less than optimum decisions? Yeah. So one of the clients that we really started this with, you know, when we approached him and he runs all workplace strategies, so people acquisition, real estate and strategy, what he was really trying to solve for is um, he was being sent lots of spreadsheets from brokers and he was being sent um, and then asked to do, you know, static consulting projects. And what he was trying to solve for, which I think this is what we're solving for is how can I have actually a tool in my own, on my own that I can do a lot of this work and not have to lean on HR consultants or, or real estate consultants, uh, particularly in the early stage of maybe a strategy change around people acquisition and real estate acquisition. And so what we're solving for is how do you take all this data and put it in one place, allow people to do research, scenario analysis um, in a way that they have it in-house first, having to rely on static reports. And the second thing is around speed and scale. It's really hard if every time you have an idea that you have to go to a consultant and say, hey, could you, could you do this consulting project? And they say, sure, we'll be back in two weeks or a month or six weeks. When actually want to start answering these questions or getting a feel for these questions in real time. And so I think that's really the change. And then I think the big change is the pandemic, you know, has really fundamentally changed how we're thinking about people acquisition and how we're thinking about real estate and the needs of real estate. And people don't want to wait four, months, uh, four weeks, six weeks for that. And then lastly, you know, we're using more real-time data, whereas a lot of the consultants are using, you know, data that comes out once a year. And we're using data that comes out, you know, once a week or once every two weeks. And that gives people a better view of maybe what's happening. You just mentioned the pandemic has, has changed how people think about these yeah. things. It certainly changed how a lot of employees think about the office. And I think it's changed how quite a lot of employers think about the office. So on the one hand, you have, you know, the CEOs of the major investment banks, you know, Goldman and JP Morgan will say, well, we'd like you all back in the office because they think that's how we uh, can be creative. Uh, and then you've got other companies who are saying the opposite, saying, well, we'll let these people work from home. Do you think that that difference is, is about the industry or is it about the culture of the, of the organization? Yeah, so I think this is, um, this is a very thoughtful question. And I think that, I think industry is different. I think that's one thing. I think if we, in a world where I worked more in investment banking in the beginning, you know, that was a very, um, very much a sales, interact with customers, be front and center, be in the office, go see them, come back, uh, collaborate. And I think that's a industry specific. So it is not surprising to me that Goldman and JP Morgan and others are saying you need to be uh, at, at the office. Um, and they're demanding that. The second part about that is that I've really thought about is the labor tightness is not as pronounced in investment banking as it is in tech. So 
if we go to tech, you know, a lot of those jobs are, they don't need to interface with people. They can be coding, they could be coding anywhere, they could be at their house, they could be remote, they could be anywhere. Um, and then second of all, the labor market is so tight in engineering that you as an employer have to probably make accommodations to that set of employee base that you wouldn't have to make in investment banking. So I think it's industry specific and I think it's also how people interact with their business partners and clients. And then third, it's, it's really around a labor tightness and shortage. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll give you an example. Let me just give you one example. Like when we talk to our clients and they say, by the way, if you ever hear any of the tech companies forcing people to go to the office, please let us know because we'll be calling those people ASAP. Okay. So, okay well, we're probably not going to do that, but I, we take your point. We take yeah. your point. Yeah. But how many of the companies you're talking to, whatever industry, then how many of them are actually thinking about this intelligently and strategically, but which I mean, asking themselves, well, the pandemic occurred, we discovered the company didn't fall over if people were working from home. Uh, now's the time for us to think about which of these roles need to be in the office and which roles can yeah. stay at home, which roles need to do a, a, a bit of both. Do you see companies actually trying to work with you and indeed producing data of their own, which would enable them to assess properly what jobs need to be office-based and what jobs can be based anywhere? Is that happening? Is strategic thinking on that happening? Yeah, that, that you know, um, I probably have had 200 meetings in the last six or seven million, uh, six or seven months with HR, real estate. So that discussion is very much happening at almost every company that we speak to. Um, and I think that the way that they're thinking about it is how do you categorize employees? And that way we can kind of help with um, the visualization of where their employees are and how they're categorized. So we can put that on the visualization map. So it's helpful. Um, we're, we're not going to be helpful in the sense that we tell people they should be remote or they should be hybrid. That, that is a very specific company decision. But what we can do is take that data and visualize it for them that could be helpful. I think the other thing that's really happening is, is back to the earlier question was around culture. And so I think what people are starting to come to a conclusion around is it's not a debate anymore. Are you more productive at home versus more productive at the office? I think when this first happened, it was a big debate about when are people more productive? I think a lot of companies would now say, you know what, you might be more productive at home, actually. You actually might be. But what you're missing in the office is your ability to develop trust and relationships with your employees and potentially with the clients. So we want to create the ability for you to go to the office where it's more around collaboration, kind of event driven, where you can build more relationships or on top of your relationships and build trust. And I think that's become more important to companies as they're thinking about helping employees use the office as a way to to drive those two things. So for instance, um, one of our clients is setting up uh, an employee experience office on Fifth Avenue. And that office will really be there for people to go there, to collaborate, to interact, to have events, so people can see each other and work together. 
and hopefully drive the culture and the relationships and the trust between employees. So you need a different type of real estate to build trust and relationships within and without the company. Yeah, so I think that's one of the things they're thinking about is like, you know, maybe you have to, like where your real estate strategy before was, you know, we had really nice offices. Now what they're thinking is maybe we have nice office, but we have different mix of offices as well. Like we have an employee customer experience office. We have, we've, you know, we work with one of the flex space and say, okay, you can work there. So I think the real estate services will broaden out, you know, for the employee. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that mix is really changing. And I think a lot of that discussion is going on with, um, with the smart and thoughtful companies. And I guess where that employee experience center is, the location matters a lot. You're more likely to get an experience center on Fifth Avenue than in I don't know, Jersey City, aren't you? Right. Right. And, and I think the other thing about it, uh, Dominic, is that, you know, this, you know, a lot of retail companies have had a hard time. And so they're giving up their space and the bigger corporate companies are saying, wait a minute, we never thought about having taking over retail space that could be for us, but it'd be in a high dense area. It would be probably interesting to go to. Now we're interested in that kind of space. And one of our clients is doing that right now is taking retail space from somebody and going to build this customer experience on Fifth Avenue. And um, I think that's a really interesting idea. And I don't know that everybody's going to do that, but I think that's, that's a, a really um, interesting strategic decision. And I think you'll see probably particularly the tech companies doing more and more of that. Mm-hmm. And you said, en passant, almost a few minutes ago, that you'd had 200 meetings in the last seven or eight months. And you said, with real estate and, and HR, is that the ideal target client for you? Is, is it the head of human resources, head of, head of real estate? Or, or should you be, would you like to be talking to the CEO, the CFO, the, the COO? Who's your ideal client inside a large corporation? Well, I, I think this is, this is another good question. So um, one example I want to share with you is one of the larger um, tech companies said to us that this person was the COO. And he said, you know, before the pandemic, any HR decisions or any um, real estate decisions, he ultimately could sign off on it. He didn't have to go to the CEO. But now what he said is actually, it's become such a foundational issue. The the talent acquisition and the real estate have become such a foundational issue for us. Now it's, he said, it's myself, the CEO, the CFO, the head of strategy and the head of HR. And we collaborate on what we should do. So I think um, ultimately for us, it is that nucleus of people at that level that are making the strategic acquisition of talent in the acquisition of real estate as the buyer of our product. And I think that um, what I find is what's also happening with the tech companies is HR and real estate are starting to emerge into more of one and kind of a workplace strategies. And so I think as you do that, that's probably the natural buyer, but that buyer is also at the C-suite level or right below. And then the people that use it every day are kind of be, you know, analysts that work under those those two types of people. You mentioned tech companies a number of times and you drew attention earlier to the 
distinction between the culture of a tech company and the culture of a, an investment bank, for example, would it, would it be misleading for me to come away from our conversation thinking that actually the product you have is more suited to more innovative, more free thinking tech companies than to sort of boring traditional uh, corporations who lack that energy and um, desire to well, I, I, I think the, the way I would I'd probably be a little more philosophical about it. I would say that um, when you're coming out with kind of an innovative product that you naturally uh, find yourself more in discussions early on with companies that kind of think that way as well. So they're innovative, they're they're pushing the envelope on their technology. They're pushing the, their envelope on data and how you use data. And um, they are kind of naturally aligned to kind of early adoption. But I would also say some of the larger companies have also um, been interested in how to use data, how to drive data. I mean, we have the largest um, investor in the world and they're very fascinated around how to use data more, how to use analytics more, how do I make it um, make us more data driven? So I wouldn't say it's just the tech. I would just say we're probably more aligned early days with the kind of um, innovative tech companies than the, the larger corporates. But um, I think we will find ourselves kind of more and more as we evolve into, into the kind of older, more established corporations mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. The answer to this question may be that it's, it's, it's too soon to say as well, but if you look at the, the labor market and the real estate market at the very highest level, is there any kind of insight which you can offer already, which would say something like, well, 80% of, we now know that 80% of people in a job in the United States would like to have some different combination of home working and, and office working from now on, or is it, is it too soon to arrive at those very high level generalizations yeah. i mean I, I think i have based on what we're doing highly intuitive you know feedback but I, I i think we're probably a little early before we come out with you know the actual hard data but you definitely can see lots of movement migration movement you can see you know the the idea that people want to work more remote you can see where people want the commute times to be less and this idea that they're going to drive now you know 30 miles each way in an hour each you know i think is becoming yeah. i think that's becoming strained so i think we're probably a little early but i i've got some pretty good intuitive ideas on that my last question is even even less fair to you, really, which is okay. we touched earlier on on predictions and, and and projections. But can I tempt you to make some um, tentative predictions about what the future of the office is going to be like and what the future of the workforce is going to be like? How would you describe if we look, I don't know, twenty years ahead? What do you think it's going to look like? Yeah. So this is my gut reaction at the moment is I don't think office is dead. I, ju I just don't think office is dead. I think that people still want that experience to work with people, to interact with people. And it's, I would say that what companies have to do is make that experience, you know, far better than it even was before. And it has to be such a difference between that experience and sitting at home and working. 
I think the second thing is uh, people will find themselves interested in uh, multiple ways of working. So maybe I work one day or two days at home, two days flex, which is near my home, and then maybe one day a week at the office or some kind of combination. So I definitely see that as a future for people. Um, and I, I do think that um, people, I, I still think that big cities will gravitate young people to come. I think there's just too much that these big cities offer. Um, but I think as you're, as you're older and have families and have different obligations and interests and responsibilities, I think if you can find yourself being able not to have to be in the office five days a week, the, the movement and migration of people will continue into places where people want to live more than um, they do versus big cities where it's just generally harder and more expensive. So I, I think you'll see a migration um, in that case. Sam Hawking, thank you very much. Loved it, and it was great to see you. <laughs>